Good morning again. Good morning. There we go. I thought I thought we were gonna to have to call an ambulance there. Uh, there we go. There was another song, so thank you to the worship team just for um, the sake of time. We're we're gonna just um, cut that uh, for now. Um, but we are continuing on. Who's excited to be here this morning? Yeah, I even got a woo. Yeah, that was good. The woo was for Jesus, though, wasn't it? Which is good. But we're continuing in in our study on the Sermon of the Mount, this great sermon uh, which was preached by Christ to the masses all those years ago. And this is a sermon which lays out the basis and very foundations of how we ought to live as the people of God. Pastor, why on earth are we going through it verse by verse? And why are we spending so many weeks in here? We're doing it because it's fundamental to what we believe and who we're called to be. Uh, we're doing it because these are the words which Jesus spoke. We're doing it because the contents, regardless of whether they're challenging to who we are or not, are of the utmost importance. As we, it was funny, I made a joke. Um, I was having a conversation with a, a pastor over in Kissimmee First Church of the Nazarene and I was saying, yeah, on my last Sunday, I preached on murder, adultery and divorce. Um, so they might not want me back, you know. Um, but the, the, why did we do that? We did that because it's important. We can't just pick and choose that which we want. And we can't just pick the stuff that we find easy. But these are words which were spoken a couple of millennia ago uh, by Christ and they're just as relevant and fundamental now as they were then. And therefore it's of the utmost importance that we not only give them consideration, that we don't just read them, but as Stephen said, that the Lord would really impress them upon our hearts. That the Lord would instruct us and teach us, that we would study them and wrestle with them together. That the living word of the living God would dwell richly in the living people of God. And that we would be shaped by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to be the church and to be the people that God has called us to be. And today we consider two very well-known sections of the Sermon of the Mount. Which, whilst well-known have proven to be, down through the generations, very difficult to put into practice in meaningful ways. Stephen just read to us earlier from Matthew 5, 38 to 48. And right now, our focus is going to be around verses 38 to 42, before jumping to the later part a little bit later on. And I've entitled this, What's Love Got to Do With? Anybody, a song come to anybody's mind? You'll be glad to know. I'm definitely not singing this one this week. Uh, call us to sing. Yeah. What's love got to do with it? This, of course, is a section which Jesus begins by speaking of what the law had said, of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, laying out before the people that which they already knew and in their Jewish context would have memorised they would have known this, the Mosaic Law. But once again, he, as he has been throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and will continue to throughout the Sermon, and indeed through his other teachings found in the Scriptures, Jesus raises the bar. 
He raises the bar. He takes what's there and he raises the standard. He raises the expectation. Now, by the time of Jesus, physical penalties such as an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. So if somebody comes and takes your eye, you take their eye too. Somebody comes and pulls out your tooth, ugh, right? Somebody comes and pulls out your tooth, you're entitled to go and do the same to them. That tit for tat mentality in its very physical nature. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the physical penalties had generally been replaced by financial charges. Who loves it when they get a financial charge through the letterbox? We were driving up from Dublin Airport the other day and um, I think I saw the Garda too late. So uh, maybe, maybe your pastor might have a speeding fine, a financial damage, as it were, um, through his letterbox. And I hope that no Garda officers are watching. What Jesus is opposing, rather than this physical retaliation, um, what he is opposing is the insisting on even legitimate retribution. What he's resisting is, just because you can do something, doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Just because you can, doesn't mean that you should. And he uses three very Eastern examples, things that are perhaps lost in translation for you and I in our 21st century context, but things which would have been very well known to the people because Jesus spoke in the language that the people understood. He used examples that people understood. And he uses the example of somebody striking you on the right cheek. Somebody comes up to you and strikes you on the right cheek. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right? <laughs> but to be struck on the right cheek, whilst it's not something that either you or I would particularly want to happen to us, in the context into which Jesus is speaking, it would be to be struck on the right cheek would have been considered an insult and a challenge an insult and a challenge as if to say actually if you're going to strike somebody you're going to strike them on their left cheek in other words why are you not hitting me right if you're going to hit me hit me right it is considered to be a an insult and a challenge and jesus's instruction here is not to do what would be our natural inclination which would be we, we, we all have either fight or flight. One instance may be that we choose the flight and we run away. Somebody, somebody hits us and we run away. The other one, which is probably more likely in East Belfast, is if somebody smacks us in the right cheek, we go, I'll smack you in the right cheek. Let's go. Absolutely. But Jesus is saying here to his disciples, he says, turn the other cheek also. Somebody smacks me, ah, this is my right. Somebody smacks me here. Jesus says, turn the other cheek also. And what Jesus is saying here is he's, he's not promoting violence. He's not, he's not saying be a doormat and let people do whatever they want to you. What Jesus is saying here is even when openly insulted, even whenever people openly insult us, because it's unlikely that anybody is going to walk up and smack us in the face. 
It doesn't happen that often. It still happens, but the likelihood is that it's not going to happen to anybody in this room this afternoon. But what is likely is that somebody may insult us. They may insult our intelligence. They may insult our family. They may insult our integrity. They may insult who we are as a person. They may insult our belief. They may insult the fact that we are here this morning worshipping Jesus. And when Jesus instructs to turn the other cheek, what he's saying is even when we're openly insulted, we are to bear no personal grudge and we are to bear no hatred and we are to avoid any thought of resentment in our lives. And rather we are to seek to win that person through our attitude toward them for the sake of the kingdom. Another example Jesus uses is the coat or the garment. If somebody is, takes you to court and sues for your shirt, they wouldn't sue you for your shirt, they'd sue you for thousands of pounds. But if somebody took you and sued you for your shirt, Jesus says, give them your coat. Give them your coat. Avoid the thing even going to court. And go above and beyond and give them your coat. Now, each and every um, Jew would have had a variety and a number of different tunics or shirts, these undergarments um, that they would have worn. But interestingly, research has shown that in the time of Jesus, the upper garments, the coats, the cloaks were so expensive that you only owned one. You only owned one. We went holiday shopping, um, as, as you do before you go on holiday, and we had put a wee bit of money aside, and we went and got effectively a summer wardrobe. Because the last time Chloe and I went to the sun, I was skinnier. Um, and uh, the clothes that we wore on our honeymoon don't necessarily fit in the way that they did whenever we were on our honeymoon. So we went and we bought some, you know, we bought some t-shirts, I bought some shorts, uh, because apparently we don't really wear shorts in Northern Ireland, so I didn't know that my shorts didn't fit me until a couple of days before. You know, all of those sort of things. But it's interesting, you can get t-shirts for relatively cheap, you can get shorts for relatively cheap. But if you happen to go even into the likes of Primark, where it's good value, seen as good value, you go to the coat rack. And when the t-shirt prices might be here, and the jumper prices might be here. The coat prices are through the roof. They're really, really expensive. And a good coat costs a lot of money. And so it was that the Jews only had, in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, would have only had one cloak, one upper garment, one coat. And so precious it was that it was considered to be part of their estate. So precious it was it was considered to be part of their estate. And if they were to pass on, so would their coat as part of a will, as part of their estate. And when Jesus says, give them your coat, give them your coat, people are probably going, who does this boy think I am? Does he think I'm made of money? Who, what? This is so countercultural in a way that we cannot understand in our 21st century context because I have a number of coats. Coats that I should wear more often than I do. Coats that I take for granted. 
But here Jesus is saying, give them part of your estate. See, if they come looking for a measly shirt, give them part of your estate. Give them a valuable gift. And a much more valuable gift might be freely given without any loose lawsuit at all, with a view with, for the purpose of winning the heart of the person who's bringing the case against you. In other words, overwhelm them with the love of God. Overwhelm them with the love. Then there's this other picture that Jesus paints of a compulsion to go a mile. And this refers to the custom uh, on the great high roads of the Roman Empire, whereby an officer of the government was free to take forced labour from any locality, any individual, in order to do his official work. The Romans were kings of delegation. They never did anything themselves. And it was always dreaded that those who were occupied, if they felt the, um, the touch on their shoulder of a spear, they knew that whether they liked it or not, they would have to walk a mile, that they would have to do all the work of that Roman um, govern, uh, government official, that they would have to do all of their work in a square radius of a mile. You'd be raging, wouldn't you? Could you imagine you just sat down with a nice wee bit of unleavened bread uh, and overcomes a Roman soldier, a Roman official, and puts his spear on your shoulder and says, come on, let's go. You wouldn't be too happy about it. And they weren't too happy about it. It was work which was done begrudgingly because let's be honest, if it was you and it was me, we would do it begrudgingly as well. Because it seemed unfair, it seemed needless, it seemed like, well, what are they getting paid for? Why am I doing what they are to do? See, for anyone to accept this forced labour as a willing task, and then also, as Jesus says, to go that extra mile, so to willingly carry the burden further, that would be quite an unprecedented act. It wouldn't be normal. And it might be expected to touch even the hardest of hearts. You ever had somebody do something for you that's just blown you away? And you thought, why on earth have they done that? And it's got you sitting, and it's got you thinking, and it's just really got you contemplating, well, there must be something a little bit different about that person. There must just be something different about that individual. And as Jesus says to go the extra mile, this is what he's saying. He's saying, overwhelm them with my love. Overwhelm them with love. Overwhelm them with the attitude of Christ. And here, what we see, the old economy, the, the, the law, the, the, it had to do a lot with personal rights. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, a bit of a tip and a bit of a tap. But now this new law which Jesus brings in, because remember Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but rather came to fulfill the law. The new law which Jesus brings proceeds from a center of delight in extending undeserved and unnecessary generosity towards individuals. Jesus is once again raising the bar. He's once again raising the expectation of those who follow after him. And how is that law which he came to fulfill, fulfilled? 
in love. In love. In love for God and love for neighbour. And this law of love speaks not only of a refusal to exact just penalty and punishment, but of an eagerness to overwhelm those who wrong us with such true generosity that they might feel shame from the wrong that they have done. And then of their own accord, make amends for it. I love what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says, the Christly soul, the man in the kingdom is forevermore overfilling the measure, overstepping the necessity, doing that which no man had any right to expect from him. Justice. Justice becomes love lit. I love that picture of justice becoming love lit and full when he, Christ, interprets it. And under the guise of these Eastern pictures, these vivid Eastern pictures, Jesus is laying down for us three great rules. And with these, this morning we'll, we'll finish and we'll park and we'll come back to the rest of the message next week. I'm just aware of our time. But under the guise of these Eastern pictures, Jesus lays down three great rules. And the rules are this. And you'll see them behind me here as well. That as the people of God, as Christians, we should never resent or seek retaliation for any insult, however calculated and however deadly it may be toward us. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Secondly, the Christian is someone who has forgotten that they have any rights at all and will not stand on any legal rights or any other rights they may believe themselves to possess. And they may do that for the sake of the kingdom. Now, does that mean that if you have been wronged in the court of law that you are not allowed to defend yourself? Absolutely not. That's not what's, what Jesus is saying here. But really what Jesus is saying and what the second rule could just say is to prefer one another. To prefer one another, to put the rights of others above the rights of our own and then this way fulfill the law of Christ. So don't, don't mistake that for, for saying that you're not allowed to defend yourself because that's not what Jesus is saying here. And then lastly, the Christian will never think of their right to do what they like, but always of their duty to be of help in the name of Christ. In other words, we sang it earlier, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is the mentality. This is the ethos of the kingdom. And this is hard. I'm not going to dance around the fact that this is really hard. And it's really difficult. Because sometimes you ever look at somebody and you just go, you were not slapped as a child. <laughs> right? And I would love to correct that right now. Sometimes it's really hard to bite our tongue. Sometimes it's really hard to shrink back a little bit and to take the necessary step back. But what Jesus says 
is think of the bigger picture. Think of the bigger picture. Think about the one whom you serve. Think about the one whom you represent as an ambassador here on earth. Think of the one whose name you bear. We very deliberately had communion earlier. We very easily could have had it at this point. She's just buzzing. (laughs) Because Jesus, if anybody had the right to retaliate, it was Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. He was laughed at, he was scorned, he was battered, he was bruised. Yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And it's his example that we're called to follow this morning. Not becoming doormats, not becoming pushovers, but becoming kingdom bearers. Taking the good news of the kingdom of God everywhere that we go. Being living embodiments, living examples of what it means to follow after Christ. To be his hands and his feet. To be the salt and light that our world needs. The love of God is a love that gives of itself in order to help and strengthen those who are in need. And to try to live this kind of life in and of ourselves is just not possible. However, with the blessed promise and offer of the Holy Spirit of God working in and through, there is hope that with God, all of this is possible. Will we pray together as the team come to lead us? in our closing worship. Lord, we are just so thankful for the truth of your word. But Lord, we are struck by the difficulty of it in practice. So Lord, we ask for a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit, not just of your Holy Spirit's presence, but also of your Holy Spirit's power to enable us, to equip us, to overcome that we may be individuals, but also a people who are known by their love and who reflect the goodness of God in the land of the living. So Lord, we pray today that you would help us to be all that you have called us to be and that you would have your way in us and through us for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start together.